The following Dharma discourse was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmn.org. Thank you for listening. <clears throat> Good morning, everyone. So we're entering into our last week of this fall intensive, Mongo. Um, this time, next week, I'll be taking it easy. <laughs> and she will not. <laughs> or maybe she will. We'll see. <laughs> so continuing with these practice phrases and slogans of Atisha. So for those unfamiliar, Atisha is 11th century Indian Dharma master who presented and gave us these 59 short, pithy slogans to practice by. And they're intended to be taken up one at a time and to be contemplated and applied, taken up as, as practices. They're popular, I guess, I don't know if that's quite the right word, but well-received, in part because they're short and pithy. The language is fairly accessible. They're not couched in, in particularly difficult Dharma teachings, and so they're accessible in that way. They're not necessarily easy to practice, and that's why they're important, is because they bring us our attention to those things that, that do need practice, and, you know, the fact that the teachings that we receive go back hundreds and hundreds of years means, one, that we haven't changed much as human beings. The things we get stuck in are the people, the same things people got stuck in in the time of the Buddha, and everyone and every point in between, and that they are still with us because they are effective, they're helpful. They, even though they're fairly accessible in language, they do need commentary because some of them that seem so obvious may have particular meaning in Buddhism in terms of what, what they're pointing to, how to, to practice them, how they are understood within the, the context of, of Buddhist teachings. And so that's what many teachers have done over the centuries. That's what I've been doing this ongoing. So the one, the several we'll take up today, we'll begin with don't be swayed by external circumstances or don't depend on external circumstances. Pamashodran says whether you're sick or well, rich or poor, comfortable or uncomfortable, practice these slogans. And these references in the commentaries by these different teachers I've been quoting to these slogans is true because they're pointing to these specific teachings that are you know, the context for all this. But really, it's, we can think of that in just in terms of practice. Whether sick or well, rich or poor, comfortable or uncomfortable, practice. And this is one of the most essential points in practice, is that if we want to integrate these teachings, this practice into our life, if we want to have a unified life, if we want it to permeate our lives, then we need to practice doing exactly that, integrating, unifying, permeating. That doesn't just happen 
Well, I mean, it does to a certain extent, to the extent that we are practicing and really engaging. But if we, you know, create these divides between inside the zendo and outside the zendo, on the cushion and off the cushion, when we practice and when we don't, then we will continue to experience our life in in a way that's divided and divided specifically from dharma. And so we have to bring these teachings into our practice through being mindful, aware, through living well by the precepts, reflecting on the basic teachings of impermanence and causation, non-duality, and then bring that into each given moment. And if that comes easily, then let it be easy. If it takes a lot of effort for that to happen, then apply that effort. If it just needs a short moment that you bring that, then let it be short. If it needs a sustained effort, then sustain it. Judy Leaf says, the idea is not to wait for your circumstances to line up just so before you launch into mind training. In fact, the best time to work with your mind may be when the conditions are not so good. If you're waiting for the right moment, you may end up waiting for a very long time. It reminds me of that old New Yorker cartoon where somebody was in their office on the phone trying to schedule an appointment. And into the receiver they say, how about never? Never works for me. Does that work for you? (laughs) So it may be never if we're waiting. (laughs) Because waiting assumes that there is a better time, that there are better conditions, It assumes that time and those conditions will come. It assumes that when they do come, we'll actually notice that. We may be in a different place. We may see things differently. It assumes that we'll still be able to practice. It assumes we'll still be alive. And so the the teachings say, don't wait. That's why before we go to end our day each, each night, we're reminded in the evening gatha, time swiftly passes by. Opportunities are lost. They come and go. The capacity to practice, to practice in this particular way. All of those things that we rely upon to practice are conditions that are not just subject to change, but will change. And so there are, there are many reminders in the teachings to not assume that those conditions which might be in good supply today will be there tomorrow. And when we gain more skill when the conditions are not good, then our practice becomes, by, by almost by definition, more stable, more expansive, more flexible, stronger. Because we're not waiting for perfect conditions, we're just practicing. It's one of the nice things about being in training, is that you know, we, we, we encounter each part of the day, each practice, coming into the zendo to sit, whether we feel like it or not. Because that's the agreement we've made. That's how we're going to train. And so when, when I come into the zendo, or when I certainly many, many times in the past when I came to the zendo, you know, dragging my ass or tired or upset about something and thinking, this is not a very good time to sit, I went in to sit. And in doing that, I discovered... I can do that. You can do that. And we learn, we sort of draw upon what we need to be able to do that. And our practice gets larger, more resilient. 
Trelik Kjellgren says, no one is ever consistently happy. And for as long as we live, we will meet with favorable and unfavorable conditions. And so to wait is to, is to wait. When things become less disagreeable within ourselves, then the world somehow becomes more agreeable. You know, one way of thinking of this is that, as Dogen says, when one dharma arises, appears before you, practice that dharma. It's just a good sort of practice incentive to take care of things as they arise. You know, we see in so many examples within ourselves, within families, within communities, within nations, things that have not been taken care of do not go away. They get stronger and, in their, and, they get, and they fester. And they become harder and harder to attend to, harder to work out because they accumulate so much unnecessary, but inevitable, really, burden because they are not being take, taken care of. And so that basic attitude of just taking care of what needs to be. You know, it's like when you've got a list of things to do, and they're the things you like to do, they're the things you don't like to do. You have to do them all, right? Let's say that's your job. And so to put off those things that we don't like to do, they're still there, and they can kind of nag, you know, because we don't like them, and so we're not looking forward to it, and it becomes a weight, a burden. Simple things sometimes help. <laughs> the next slogan is, this time, practice the main points, or the important points. And so there are three aspects to this. First, seek to help others. Seeking to help others is more important than just looking out for yourself. So this is a simple way of expressing the basic bodhisattva view. That bodhicitta is the raising of the imperative and the commitment to do whatever we can to alleviate, to diminish the harm, the suffering that exists within ourselves and others. And to, because the inclination is to put ourselves first. Even if the way we put ourselves first is by excluding ourselves, putting our, we put ourselves first in making that sort of the central focus of our attention and our energy. And so to put others first is understanding that we're already going to have an inclination to, to include ourselves, but to check that tendency to put ourselves in front of everybody else, right? Which is basically the, you know, kind of what happens with the attachment to a sense of self. Judy Leaf said, obviously, this is a pretty major attitude shift. But you could begin simply by noticing what you think about. How much do your thoughts revolve around you and your concerns? How often do any thoughts of others arise, let alone thoughts of actually benefiting others? And it's good. It's a good counsel. It's like just observing throughout the day, just taking note. How often are our thoughts our internal dialogue, our external words, the actions that we're engaged in, 
whatever they might be, if we look closely, centered within ourselves, even if we're doing something for somebody else, do we see are there ways in which it's, that action actually comes back to me? What I want, what I'm seeking, what I hope happens comes out of this. And to just take note of that. You know, I think of, we get up, we have breakfast, we launch our day, we go out, and we think about all the things we have to do, all the things we have to take care of, so on. And so we're on task, because we got all these things we got to do. And so the Bodhisattva has things to do, right? They have a list of daily tasks. But think of leaving the, leaving the house with all of those in mind, right? You've created a list, you've got a sense of, what happens first and second. So we don't have to hold that right here. But rather, leaving the house thinking, I'm entering into a field of possibility. I'm entering into a field of influence. I'm going to come into contact with other beings. How can I help? What benefit could I bring to this day? In other words, we leave the house with with a larger mind, a larger awareness that this day is not just about what I need to do, but it's about how I can use those tasks, those involvements, to bring me into contact, to create possibilities in which I might contribute in some small way. It's like a different mindset. As she says, it's an attitude shift. And what it does is it releases us, helps to release us from sort of the the overly self-directed concern, which can close us in so that we're not noticing so much what's happening around us. It it creates that concern that we might naturally have for ourselves and just makes it more inclusive. What does this seek to help others is more important than only looking out for yourself? How is that for someone who has been raised to always put others first? They're always the last one. It's not about them. Everyone else counts. You, not so much. How does this slogan work for that person? Right? We have to be careful. Right? These teachings don't exist in a void. When we encounter them, they now exist within us. So what is the the karmic ground? What is the, the, the mind in which those teachings are being received? so that they can be received as medicine and not be misunderstood or, or used as a, a further sort of affirmation. You know, when we started doing work in the prisons many, many years ago, it took a while to understand and, to, and sort of be hearing from the students who are incarcerated that the teachings of no self for many of the men in that song, in the Lotus Flower Sangha, were being heard as another negation of who they are. Right? There's no self means you're no good. You never were, you aren't, and now Buddhism confirms it. Was hearing that sense of no self as not an affirmative, not a liberation from self-grasping, but as a kind of condemnation which of course is not its teaching or purpose, but so these teachings are heard and can be heard through that lens, because that's the lens we've got, 
And so we have to examine and be aware of that. Sometimes it means we have to hear them, even sort of reframe them a little bit to, to maintain the essence so that the, the medicinal quality is still there, but the way it's presented may be more conducive. I mean, if a teaching is leading, or if, if putting others first is leading to resentment or bitterness or anger, we should stop and reflect. Or if we're getting burned out or overwhelmed, right, we should stop and reflect. Right? Because the bodhisattva who is used up is not very useful. Right? And so how to give, and I think in giving, there has to be receiving. And in, in, in this bodhisattva path, one of the most important ways of receiving is by practicing, is by sitting on this cushion and going back in, letting go of all of the concerns. To alleviate suffering, there have to be moments and sustained moments where we forget about the suffering. Right? Not because it doesn't matter, but because in this moment, we're trying to get closer to the fundamental matter, right? That is free of suffering. And in that, there's rejuvenation. It's the wellspring of all that comes forth. So really, the more challenging the circumstances in giving, for instance, the more important it is to keep our practice steady. When things are really tough, that is not a good time to move away from practice, although that sometimes happens. And it often happens because we don't want to face what we expect to face when we sit on the cushion because we think that's not what Zazen is supposed to be. If my mind is distracted, if I'm upset, if I'm you know, in a state of some sort, that's not very calm. So we, have, we can impose an idea of what we think as Aizen is rather than realizing, oh, this is actually the time when Zazen becomes most important so that I can actually meet all that is turning within me, because there it is, and meet it in a different way, in a way that isn't perpetuating, isn't just getting further entangled, actually is leading to insight. And this is where patience can be so important. Patience can save a life. You know, some things, some challenges that we encounter just sometimes require great effort, but it's, it's just, in a sense, a momentary effort. And there are other challenges that require ongoing effort. Parents probably have some sense of this. <laughs> right? And so that requires, might require great effort, but it has to be sustained. You know, sometimes we have the capacity to just really apply ourselves in a way that we couldn't over a sustained period of time, but we can for this moment, for this event. We have that capacity, which can be very powerful. But, but if that becomes an ongoing situation, then something needs to shift, right? Because that isn't going to be sustained. So to sort of have a sense of, think of Ango. It's three months of increased sustained efforts. Think of Seshin. It's a, it's a week of a sust- increased sustained effort. Those work because they have beginnings and ends. Right? If we try and sustain that, 
perpetually, then what tends to happen is it'll just that intensity will start to fall apart. The second important thing to practice is that practice is more important than understanding. And this has to do with study of the Dharma or intellectual understanding. Julie Lee says, often practice and study are described as being like the two wings of a bird or an airplane, since they're both essential and they support each other. But here, the plane tilts a little towards practice. The practice is more important. And study, Dharma study, is very important. It's in one of our gates of training. It's, it's always been important. In the time of the Buddha, before anything was written down, that's why you had to remember what the teaching was, right? So the students had these incredible memories. So they would remember these teachings so that then they could study that teaching in their mind. We have books, right? So our memories have gotten a little lazy, but we can refer and come back and examine and reflect. And that helps us to develop right understanding, which then flows right into our practice. Practice keeps the study from becoming purely conceptual, from becoming its own sort of self-satisfied endeavor. Like we get a lot of intellectual satisfaction. The Buddha realized, the Buddha taught this, that intellectual satisfaction can be very powerful. There's something very gratifying about that. When I was studying mathematics, it took me a while to realize I didn't, in my heart, feel like mathematics was really an important thing that I needed to devote my life to. The reason I liked it was because it was self-satisfying. I liked the feeling, the experience, almost the aesthetic, the experience of doing mathematics in terms of how I experienced that in my mind. Right? And that's, you know, can be nice, but it can also be dangerous because that becomes its own thing. And so in that way, practice doesn't become integrated, it doesn't really get tested because it's just conceptual. Study can only take us so far. And so this, this part is really saying, keep that in proper relationship. You know, it's like a teisho, like this, is it purpose, it purpose is to offer a teaching, like Dharma rain that falls equally everywhere, right? Even though it's received differently because we hear things differently depending on where we are in our practice. But it's sort of a, a general teaching, right, that needs to work in a general audience. People who have just come in for the first time may know very little about Buddhism. People who have been practicing for decades. And so in order to be Dharma Rain, it needs to try and address the speaker, me in this case, needs to try and address everybody. So everybody gets wet. Face-to-face is not like that. Face-to-face is not general. It's very specific. There is one person in front of the teacher, and they're here in this moment. They're not here yesterday. They're not here a year ago. They're here right now. That's why the student begins. Teacher doesn't know yet what is alive for the student. The student has to initiate that. And then the teacher can present and speak to that very particular moment that is happening and will never happen again. That's why it's so important, because it's so specific to this time and this place, the place in the person's practice, their mind, their way of practicing. I remember Dada Roshi saying in the oral transmission 
with me that he said, you know, you have to get to know students, how their minds work, how they use language. He said, some people are very clever with language and they can use language, often unconsciously, to sort of not directly address the Dharma or not directly allow themselves to get to their own experience, but use language as a kind of buffer. And then the third point is awakening compassion, lessening selfishness, is more important than any other spiritual practice. Judah Leaf says, of all the possible practices we might do, bodhicitta is the most important. Loving kindness is not just a fuzzy add-on, but is the very core of the Buddhist path. Too much focus on self-improvement can make us even more self-centered. I mean, the very notion of self-improvement is a little... Uh, watch out for that, right? <laughs> because it's a sense of taking something that is already there, intact, fixed, and just improving it, rather than dissolving the notion or realizing that the self does not exist. And then within that, there's some things we could work on. And this is why it's so important to practice within a sangha, to practice within our lives, because no matter what highfalutin notions we may have about what we've accomplished or what we've seen, life will pretty much test that out if we let it, if we're paying attention, right? It'll knock us back. It'll humble us. Sometimes it kicks us down, right? And we realize that, yes, we have understanding. Yes, we are sincere practitioners. We may even have some good insight, and yet still, I find myself sitting on the ground, right, looking up, right? That in that moment, it's not yet fully integrated, right? There's more. Trelek says, we shouldn't practice with cold detachment or extreme efficiency. But with true feeling and a warm heart, don't approach practice with the disciplined precision of a military exercise. And that's one of the dangers about training the way we do, is that we pay a lot of attention to detail, right? Because in that, which can be perceived as just a strict kind of discipline, adhere, line up, right? That's not his point. Part of it is to develop mindfulness. So if there's a particular way, you know, I remember standing in the, in the Zendo once with my hands in Gasho, and Kyoto, the head monk, came up and put them in the right position, the proper position. And I, you know, <laughs> I didn't like being told what to do. I didn't like being corrected. It's like, I like it here, right? Not here. And then I thought, you idiot. Do you really care? Like, is that, are you really invested in that? You hadn't even thought about that before. You weren't thinking. You aren't thinking. You aren't aware. That's what she's pointing out to you. So what am I getting upset at? Who am I getting upset at? <laughs> and so in those moments, it can be a way of letting go of these attachments we have to doing it my way, right? Which is what? Really? It's also a way of of blending, of realizing that, oh, I am actually part of something. I'm not here, isolated. But I'm part of something, and to blend into, to unify, right? Not so that I am like everybody else, 
but so that I am myself completely without needing to put forth myself as something. And the last slogan I look at today is don't misinterpret. And this is really important. You know, I've often said there it's much easier to, in a way, or not much easier, but it's 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 easy to misunderstand the teachings. Because we hear them, they're mostly presented in English, right, with some words that aren't translated, but we have to learn what those mean. And so we're hearing familiar words, familiar syntax, and we're hearing that in our familiar way, and we sort of graft our own understanding. Oh, I get it. I understand what that means. And what this slogan is pointing to is that we may be misunderstanding. We may be misinterpreting what that actually means, and then mispractice on the basis of that. So the first is to misunderstand patience. And so patience is a great and powerful, necessary, beautiful quality when it's being applied to things that we need to be patient for in our zazen, with our mind, with our attachments, with each other but not to misunderstand patience that we should accept things that we shouldn't really be accepting. We should tolerate things that we really shouldn't be tolerating, that we should just continue perpetuating things that should really be brought to an end. That that's not, that's misunderstanding patience, misapplying it. So that the commentaries point to how we can be very patient for things that are not really that important. I remember when I was in high school, you know, the Who or, you know, great big bands would come to Atlanta and people would camp out on the streets overnight to be there in the morning to get a ticket, right? So that's being very patient, right? We can be waiting in line for a donut, right? I remember when uh, Krispy Kreme opened up a shop. Krispy Kreme was a southern donut shop. So when it opened up in New York, right around the street from the temple, I was like, oh my God, I can't believe it. Heaven has come to New York, you know? So I was like, yeah, I'll get in line for one of those. (laughs) But then we can be extremely impatient when we're sitting zazen, taking up the great matter, dealing with our own mind. So we change what we can, bear what we must, and put down what is no longer useful. Misunderstanding interest. Similar, but we can give so much time and energy to things that really aren't that important, that aren't really helping us. The teachings talk so much about dedicating ourselves to getting more wealth, more power, more status, more possessions. And then, you know, with the time left over, we'll take up the question of life and death. When everything else is done, dishes are washed, kids are in bed. And of course those things need to happen. And so we have to find balance. But because those things have to happen, and if they don't, the consequences are visible and obvious. But when we really understand whatever we call spiritual practice, when we see the consequences of living unexamined lives, 
which are everywhere, then can we really afford to put that off? We have been. We, the large collective, has not been a priority. Misunderstanding how to savor things, how to sort of hold our enthusiasm, right? A moth is, is enthusiastic about the flame, but it burns them up. A gnat is enthusiastic about your eyeball, <laughs> right? Like, what is that? And it's the end of their life. <laughs> the power of desire is to excite, to attract, to pull us in every direction. That's what we feel, the strength of those desires, that excitement, that enthusiasm. <clears throat> the Buddha said, even though a disciple of the way has clearly seen as it actually is, with right discernment, that sensual pleasures, just attaching to sensual you know, pleasures and desires, causes much stress, much despair, and even greater drawbacks. Still, if one has not attained a rapture and pleasure apart from sensuality, a deeper pleasure, the basis for a much, much deeper enthusiasm. Apart from unskillful mental qualities or something more peaceful than that, then they will be tempted by those pleasures. And I think this is one of the great challenges of practice. In the beginning, we may be very attracted to what the teachings are saying and sort of holding up this possibility of what our lives could be, but our actual experience is not the... We don't have those experiences yet. But we have a lifetime of experiences of easy access to easy pleasures. And our mind is the greatest source of that, right? So sitting here on the cushion, we can go wherever we want, be with whoever we want, be doing whatever we want, and make that real in our mind in the sense that we actually have emotions, can affect our breathing, we can become aroused. We're getting excited and that seems good because, and it seems hard, and it can be hard to let go of that because that's, an, that's a present pleasure. To let go of that, to try and cultivate something that we haven't actually experienced yet. And so we have to keep having faith and trust and see, as the Buddha said, what he called the danger within those passing pleasures. Because, yeah, you know. We can go anywhere and do anything and be with anyone for a while. But eventually, there we are again. And that pleasure, so to speak, is gone, and we're not in the same place we were. We're actually, in a sense, a little bit further in a hole. Right? We've dug that hole just a little bit deeper, because that's what we've committed to. That's what we've invested in. That's the mouth we've fed, which means that mouth is going to come back around hungrier. And so this is where, you know, the, the discipline or whatever you want to call it <laughs> that helps you in those moments to remember, to return, is really important. Misunderstanding compassion. Judy Leaf says, misinterpreted compassion means to feel compassion. She talk, frames it in terms of feeling compassion for people who are dedicated to the Dharma but not compassion for evildoers. The idea being that people who are dedicated to the Dharma, 
they're going to be okay. They have a path. They have a practice. It doesn't mean don't have any compassion for them, don't care about them, but it means don't let that you know, get in the way of having compassion who don't have a practice, who don't have a way. Or worse, are not even interested, are not looking. It says true compassion is not based on picking and choosing. It's not based on sorting people into who's worthy of our compassion and who is not. To want to help those whom others might want to hurt. To want to include those who others want to exclude. And we ourselves might want to hurt and exclude. And that becomes our practice. It's okay, how do I deal with that anger, with that hatred, with that resentment, so that I can cultivate not that which becomes my own suffering. Not becomes, it is already. And that's not the path that I want to walk. And so how do I meet those strong emotions skillfully so that I can cultivate a genuine heart of compassion? Another aspect of that can be you know, to just want to make everybody happy all the time in ways that might not be helping them. But how do we help others who are not asking for your help, who make it quite clear they don't want your help, get angry when you try and help them? There was an article recently in the Times of, of, about healthcare workers who are getting assaulted in increasing numbers. And there was somebody here for a retreat who was a doctor, and I was asking him about that, and he said, yeah, it's crazy. How do we help somebody who doesn't want our help? In the Lotus Sutra, there's the section of the never-disparaging bodhisattva. So there was this bodhisattva who their whole practice was to say, to go to other bodhisattvas and say, I will never disparage you. I will never speak ill of you. I will never take any action against you. And that just pissed them off. <laughs> right? And so they would like get angry and throw sticks and stuff and yell at him. And he would just run away, get out of the way, and says, I will never disparage you. <laughs> Why? Because you are all practicing the Buddha way and are certain to attain Buddhahood. I remember early in, in my years here where there were some people in residence that I had trouble with. You know, I found it hard to feel compassion for them. I found them difficult people. And one of the things that helped me was to, to remember, you're here. You are here. You are doing this practice. You are attending to yourself. You are you know, bringing forth the same things I want to bring forth. We're in this together. And that was enormously helpful. It helped me to keep from excluding them in my mind and help to bring them closer. But how about for those who are not on a true path? Trelik talked about directing compassion towards those who are truly in need. And this is why our meta practices, working with our mind to cultivate compassion, to see in another person the rest that they are, that they are not just what they say or just what they do or just the harm that they create, although there is that. And so misunderstanding compassion can mean ignoring all the harm that they create 
because I'm a Buddhist and I have compassion, so I just love you. That's the power and the challenge of the way things work, which is non-dual. The world doesn't exclude. Nothing in the world excludes and bifurcates and creates solid boundaries and divisions. Our mind does that. But to actually put that on the ground, but what can I do? What do I do? And that's why these meta practices, the mind practices, are so important. Right? Because we can't control people. We can't just go and fix them. People who are in great power, who have the power to actually affect great change, are limited also in, this, in similar ways. And so to, to generate, to bring forth what we can, while we're doing what we can in time and space. The next one comes right after. Misunderstandings of how to give help to others. To being clear about what is important. So compassion is not just being nice or giving someone what they want. It's not always to avoid conflict, to never speak critically. It has no fixed rule. In a way, it's just this. Cease from harm and try and create some good. And so when we need to speak of others' errors and faults, their evil actions, their lack of wisdom and compassion, we need to take an action to stop something, to change something. Can we do that without the hatred, without the ill will? That is a practice that doesn't just happen once. And then finally, misunderstanding what it means to rejoice Again, sort of another aspect of this, to not rejoice in other people's struggles, misfortunes, failures. When somebody falls, in a very real sense, we all fall. When somebody suffers, we're all suffering. When a system fails, we have failed. But rather to be delighted in people I mean, that's kind of the thing with bodhisattva. They're, just, they're kind of into people. <laughs> a bodhisattva finds people endlessly interesting. We can be boring, too. But in so many ways, and certainly at the deepest levels, human beings are endlessly interesting, fascinating, and the bearers of potential. And so to be delighted in people, our qualities, our actions, our accomplishments, these teachings are all devoted and directed towards enlightening our minds, opening our hearts, and through everyday actions, gestures, opportunities, situations within ourselves, with those close to us, friends, strangers, people we'll never meet. That's the vastness of the vow. So I'll end with a bit of the metta sutta. Whatever living beings there may be, weak or strong, forsaking none, great, mighty, medium, short, small, seen, 
unseen, those living near, those far away, those born, those yet to be born. May they all be at ease without suffering. May they all be at rest. May they all be at peace. And so with a boundless heart, may we cherish these many living beings and radiate that kindness over the entire world, upwards to the skies, downwards to the depths, outwards, unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, standing, walking, sitting, lying down, free from drowsiness, this is the recollection we should sustain. This is what we should remember and remember and remember. This is said to be the sublime abiding. This is the most sublime way in which we can abide in this life. This is a meditation practice to radiate. This is the practice of the four immeasurables. To bring forth compassion within oneself and radiate out in all directions. To bring forth loving kindness and radiate it out. It's a meditation practice. It's something we do within our minds. And the more we do that, the more naturally that happens, the more familiar that becomes. You know, before practice, we rely on our habits. That's what we revert to. With training, we rely on our training. That's what we revert to. That's what we go back to. And the more we do that, the easier that becomes. And so to really appreciate the power that we have when we practice to shift the axis. Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as cushions, incense, liturgical instruments, dharma books, and more, visit monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.